Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. So last episode, we reflected a bit on your most recent course at the British Horological Institute. And after that, you made your way on over to Birmingham again. And uh, what'd you get up to there? Following the course of the BHI, I spent a week back in Birmingham. Uh, part of it was just... Uh, getting some work done and uh, catching up on things and doing a little bit of sightseeing while I was there. And then uh, the purpose of sticking around was to go to Maker Central the weekend following my course. And uh, Rich Lowen joined me for that. Uh, so he came into town halfway through the week and uh, we did a little bit of sightseeing while we were there. Although unfortunately the weather wasn't spectacular. It was uh, a little bit cold that uh, that week in Birmingham. Uh, but we stuck around for Maker Central and um, hung out with, with people that we met last year and um, set up a booth for Rich's hockey puck carving mill. We get, I think we ended up milling 260 pucks over two days and handing that out to uh, some people who were very excited to, to see a hockey puck and others who were thoroughly confused at seeing a hockey puck. But uh, it, was a, it was a good time chatting with people. I guess we had about 6,000 people walk through the venue on uh, Saturday and Sunday. That was a, it was a good time. So did you guys have a sponsor for the Pucks again this year? No sponsors this year, uh, although Vectric did uh, assist us uh, with a um, location to ship some stuff to. Uh, so we were, we were able to ship the Pucks to them, and uh, they brought them to us, and uh, they loaned us a monitor, so we didn't have to bring one of those across the pond with us. And this year, Rich refactored his CNC mill, and instead of having a uh, I guess the thing weighed probably close to 60 kilos last year when we brought it. Uh, this one weighed closer to 10 kilos. It was uh, significantly easier to carry and uh, and bring across the ocean. So that was nice to uh, to have something a little bit lighter to bring. That's an impressive change. So what were some of the techniques or methodologies he used to achieve that? Well, really, he rebuilt it completely from scratch. Uh, he actually took a small CNC mill kit from, I think it was banggood.com that he bought it from. Uh, and they're available all over the place, Alibaba Express and eBay and stuff like that. There's these um, these small CNC mill kits that you can buy. Uh, and they usually come with a small spindle. And I think if you spend a little bit extra, you can get uh, a little laser module as well. And, uh, you know, sort of for maybe $140, $150 American, you can get one of these little kits. Uh, so he took one of these kits and sort of hacked it up a little bit to be the appropriate size for what we needed because we just uh, were concerned about a puck that was, you know, two and a half inches in diameter. Uh, so he he shrunk it down a little bit, got rid of the extra bits that we didn't need, and turned it into a, a little hockey puck carving machine. So again, something that was significantly easier to deal with than uh, than the monstrosity that he had built previous. Different materials too, or just size uh different materials a uh, little bit the most of the stuff that we tend to build when we're building our own machines both he and i uh, prefer extruded aluminum for the uh the frames in this case it's just a different sized extruded aluminum uh, so on the bigger machines that we build we tend to use the 80 20 extruded aluminum and those pieces of aluminum are are sizable and very very rigid uh, they're great for building large machines uh, but they're entirely inappropriate for something like this. They're just too big. 
so this is using an extruded aluminum that's uh, much smaller in scale. Uh, the same idea, though. It has channels in it that allow you to, to put uh, sort of bolts into it easily and, and uh, bolt things together. Uh, so it's it's basically like a a little CNC Lego kit that you can get to assemble and sort of customize in the way that you want. In the vein of Maker's Fairs and somewhat sad news, Make, the magazine and publication, who also run Maker Fairs all over the world, recently announced that they are shutting down. Now, you and I actually met for the first time at a Maker Fair. Yeah, we met uh, in person for the first time at Maker Fair here in Ottawa uh, a bunch of years ago when I had set up uh, my Rose Engine, and uh, you had a chance to to sit down and play with that. And uh, I've done a done a few Maker Fairs over the years, both uh, being an attendee as well as being a, an exhibitor. It is too bad to hear about Maker Fair shutting down. Uh, I believe uh, that Dale Doherty, who founded it. He's looking to try and maintain the web presence of Make uh, so that things like the um, the magazines don't uh, don't go offline. And I believe he's also looking at maintaining the um, sort of the licensing of the name Maker Fair so that uh, people can continue to run Maker Fairs sort of under that brand around the world. Uh, and that's what places like Ottawa Maker Fair have done over the years is they've uh, they've used that brand. Um, to to run their maker fairs, so hopefully we see that continue. Uh, from what I gather, speaking to a few people, uh, sort of behind the scenes about this, it, it sounds like it just was unsustainable in terms of the cost of running the maker fairs themselves. I know the print magazine was always, you know, sort of just barely breaking even, and uh, it sounds like they lost a a number of large corporate sponsors for the bigger maker fairs. And that was just a little bit too much to put it over the edge and, and uh, shut it down. So yeah, unfortunately uh, the Bay area maker fair, which just happened, I guess it was uh, a few weeks ago now, three weeks ago, that's probably going to be the last of the large maker fairs that happens. Yeah. Certainly no easy feat running a print publication, particularly in this day and age. Yeah, that was always going to be a challenge was keeping that up and running. And, and you know, there are some other challenges as well with running maker fairs and things of that nature as well. It's it's tough to do. I know that uh, Nick Smetti, who runs Maker Central, he's had some challenges with that as well. Uh, we'll have to see if we have another year of that. Uh, I know that there was talk that he may may not continue it on next year or he may see if there's somebody else who's interested in picking it up. So we'll see. It's a, it's a tough gig trying to run these large fairs and... Uh, especially if you don't have large sponsors to uh, to help fund it. Uh, you, you know, there are plenty of people who are walking through the door. I think the uh, the number I read this morning uh, was something like 1.4 million people went to maker fairs last year across the world. Uh, so there's, there's certainly interest, uh, but with the size and scale of these events, it's really difficult to maintain them just based on the people who are walking through the door. Uh, you know, it's it's just too too costly to be able to put them on with just uh, just based on the attendance rates that you're getting. Mm-hmm. Those corporate sponsors really provide a much needed cushion for putting on these sorts of events because it's quite a gamble to try and run and, and orchestrate uh, a conference or a fair like this. 
uh, I attended NS North while you were away. Mm-hmm. And this is unspoken uh, to be the last one. Mm. And uh, just sad because it's been a great event. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I've been able to attend effectively all of the years that it's been on. I, I missed out on the very first one because I didn't know it existed. And the sad thing about that, or the ironic thing, is that uh, that's the closest it ever was to me. I mean, I could have uh-huh. rolled out of bed and been on the, the conference floor in eight, eight minutes. <laughs> uh, so it's just progressively gotten further from me uh, as the years went on. Uh, but uh, I was sure to attend everyone once I, I did know about it. And what's the, what was the focus of NS North? I've heard you talk about it a few times. But what was the focus of it? So the NS in NS North stands for Next Step. And uh, for those who may not know, Next Step was the operating system that effectively became OS ten, and it is now Mac OS. Uh, so this is a conference for Mac and iOS developers. So I attended that, and the North was a, a nod to Canada. So this is... Canada's premier conference for this sort of thing. Right. And they always put on a, a great show, had incredible speakers. For instance, this year, they had Ken Kashenda do the, the keynote, and he wrote the book Creative Selection that we spoke about a number of episodes back. And he helped build out the Safari web browser and WebKit, which effectively powers every single dominant browser in the world today backs chrome and backs microsoft's edge firefox the works it's it's pretty impressive yeah there's always been an impressive list of speakers when i've seen it it unfortunately it's never quite been in my wheelhouse i've i've thought about a, a number of times about trying to do some ios development but it's just never been high enough priority for me and this conference has always looked appealing whenever i've um i've looked at who was actually speaking at it yeah, there's no shortage of great speakers this year. Rene Ritchie, who uh, does Vector, and Imor was there this year, and Guy Rambo, who we've also referenced here on the show before, who does a whole bunch of spelunking on uh, Mac and iOS products. Uh, just uh, Yeah, every single speaker this year was, was phenomenal. Good. So it was a, a worthwhile conference for you to be at again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. And this year it was in Toronto, was it not? It's Montreal. Oh, was it Montreal? Actually, okay. yeah. yeah. Toronto was the previous one. I actually had the honor of, of speaking at that one. And the keynote speaker that year was Meili Ku, who also worked at Apple and did a lot of the prototype and design work behind things like the Taptic Engine and a whole slew of other things that uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. But pivotal in a lot of the R&D that has come to light over the years. What else did you and Rich get up to in Birmingham? Um, Nothing significant. Uh, I managed to bring Rich around to a few places that I've been to while I've I've been there in the past. No no big visits to Birmingham City University or or Cookson's this time. Uh, But we did go into the Museum of the Jewelry Quarter because Rich hadn't been there before. So that was uh, that was a lot of fun. And uh, we just spent some time walking around Birmingham itself. The uh, 
the city is is quite fascinating and uh, in particular it uh, has a wonderful canal system and uh, some great restaurants and and whatnot around the uh, the canal so we did a lot of that uh, I guess there were there were two things sort of notable at the Birmingham City Museum while I was there uh, the first was a sort of mini version of a larger exhibit uh, that was on celebrating, I want to say it's the 500th anniversary of uh, Da Vinci, uh, either his birth or death. Mm. I can't remember which one it was. Anyways, the, it turns out that the, the queen actually has the largest collection of his drawings. And wow. it, it's been passed down to her. It ended up being... If I remember correctly, all these drawings were sort of collected by one of his one of his students at his death, and he hung on to them. And then eventually, they ended up in the hands of the French king, because I believe uh, Da Vinci was actually in the French court at the time of his death. Uh, he was uh, an artist there, so these drawings ended up being passed on eventually to one of the French kings, and then bound into a book. And then given as a gift to uh, one of the English kings, uh, you know, a few hundred years later. And so it's they've remained in the collection, uh, in the uh, sort of the royal family's collection for uh, for a few hundred years. I think it contains something like 500 drawings of da Vinci's. There is no place that they're on permanent display. Uh, most of them are pretty fragile and uh, they just they, they can't handle being in being exposed to light for that uh, that length of time. So uh, for this particular anniversary, they've decided to put together an exhibit of uh, the work. And the way they started it out was the first part of the year, they had 12 mini exhibits around the country of the work. So this one in Birmingham, I want to say there were maybe 30 or 40 pieces on display. And then... Uh, this summer, they're going to have a large collection of, I believe, 200 pieces all together. And then eventually they're going to go up to uh, somewhere in Scotland. I think they're, um, I can't remember where they're they're going to be on display in Scotland, but there's a, a second location where they sort of the larger exhibit's going to be. So fortunately, I'm going to have a chance to see the larger collection when I'm in the UK. Uh, I'll be there when it's on display at the Queen's Gallery at Buckingham. And so uh, I'm, I'm going to check that out and, and see what it is. But it was nice to sort of see the smaller part of the collection uh, on display yeah, because it included a number of pieces that I'm familiar with, uh, like a number of famous drawings that uh, that I'm familiar with. So that was um, that was interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Yeah, I was grateful to catch a small slice of the Royals collection at Windsor Palace a number of years ago. But I was not aware that the Queen possesses the largest collection of his work for some reason i thought bill gates did but no i know that bill gates has one of the more significant codexes and i don't remember the details of which one it was but he does have one of the significant codexes in terms of the uh, contents of it Uh, but in terms of just sheer volume uh, from what i understand the uh, the royal family has the the largest one so that was a that was a nice uh, a nice chance encounter while I was there. In fact, it it shut down. I think I was there the day before they shut it down. Uh, So it was just, it happened to be good timing on my part when I was there. What was one standout one for you? 
Yeah, the, there were a lot of nice little details that were in it. Um, little sketches that he had created of, you know, let's say horses or uh, men on horseback or whatever that were being used for uh, larger drawings. So he was, you could see where he was sketching out uh, sort of shapes and movement and whatnot with, uh, with some of these drawings. Uh, there were a couple that were done in silver point which looked fabulous i'm a, a huge fan of silver point drawings it's not something the most most uh, modern people are used to uh, we don't really do metal point drawing anymore uh, which is too bad because it's a, a really uh, a very subtle art form and it, it looks really good uh, so it was nice seeing some original pieces of uh, of silver point drawing there and then, uh, of course, he's also famous for using that um, sort of reddish-brown ink that he uh, he did a lot of sketching with. And uh, there were a number of pieces in that uh, color that were uh, that were quite nice, that were well done. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there were there were a couple of nice pieces, uh, some interesting details, and um, I, I managed to take a couple photographs of a few pieces, uh, you know, sort of for my own my own records. And I believe there's also a uh, catalog that I'm going to pick up when I'm at the uh, the larger exhibit uh, later this year. Have you had a chance to check out the Da Vinci exhibit that recently opened here in Ottawa? No, I haven't actually been out to that yet. And uh, it's something I've been meaning to go to. Uh, from what I understand, it does include a bunch of stuff that I have seen before of his. Um, there were a number of Da Vinci exhibits on in Florence when I was there back in 2005. Uh, so I have, I have been fortunate enough to see a bunch of his work over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I haven't had a chance to see this one yet, so that's something on my uh, my summer to do list is to uh, to go out to that one. That's good. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I doubt it's got quite the same level of uh, provenance that uh, you experienced <laughs> there in Birmingham. Yeah, but it, it was good. I enjoyed it. Yeah, the other thing that I was able to see for the first time in uh, its completed state was uh, at Birmingham uh, City Museum. They now have on display the Staffordshire helm that uh, Birmingham City University created. Uh, I, th- I believe I've spoken about that a few times now with uh, Frank Cooper. He uh, was a uh, sort of principal behind getting that project going at Birmingham City University and guiding the team that was uh, involved in remaking this helm. And so this is... Uh, a helm that was inspired by the pieces that remain from the Staffordshire Horde. A lot of the little pieces they were sort of able to figure out, they were able to put together and figure out that they did belong to a helm. There, there are a number of examples, period examples of helms. And so they, they had a pretty good idea of what was, you know, what belonged to where. And so they took the pieces of information they did know as well as information about other period helms, and they recreated uh, their own version of it. And along with being on display in Birmingham, it's also on display at the museum in Stoke-on-Trent, which is close to where the actual hoard was found. Uh, so either either museum, they, they made two replicas of this helm, one for each museum. It, it's absolutely fabulous. It's uh, incredibly impressive in person. Uh, they've also included a display with a number of the tools and methods for how the team at Birmingham City University created this helm. 
and it's uh it's nice to be able to see those bits and pieces on display as well and uh, the nice thing is they've now been added to the horde itself so as part of the um the catalog of the horde the official catalog of the horde it now includes the tools and the um, the these helms uh, so they're now officially part of it and uh yeah, it's it's nice to see these pieces being recreated. They've done it with a number of other pieces, like there's a pectoral cross in the the horde, which had been uh, all the stones had been removed from it, and it had been folded up so that it was easier to to carry. And uh, they sort of unfolded it, if you will, and and made a modern replica of it and put stones into it. So there are a few pieces like that that the uh, the team at Birmingham City University have recreated over the last couple of years. So that was. Uh, you know, it's nice to see what these pieces should have looked like in their prime uh, when they were, you know, actually made for their original recipients. And did you and Rich get to spend much time with Frank? No, we didn't actually get a chance to see Frank in that uh, that visit. Um, I, I had lunch with him one day early on in the week, but um, by the time Richard arrived, we had uh, we had other things going on. So uh, unfortunately, we didn't have much of a chance to uh, to do that. However, I did get to see Frank uh, later on because he was at um, the Santa Fe Symposium with me as well. So I, uh, I definitely got a chance to uh, spend some time with him. Yeah, so from the UK, you made your way over to the USA and attended the Santa Fe Symposium there. Now, this year, I got to kick back and relax and enjoy NS North, <laughs> having not needed to speak. And um, you should have been in a, a similar situation having spoken at the santa fe symposium at its last iteration and uh this year was was your year to kick back relax and then just enjoy it and take it in but one of the perks of, of being a speaker at the santa fe symposium is that you get to go on the speaker's trip not just in the year that you speak but also in the following year how how'd that go for you this year yeah, that was a bit of an interesting trip. Um, one of the one of the unique perks of the Santa Fe Symposium is that speakers are invited on the speakers trip, and it's a chance for new speakers and old speakers to sort of talk and and get to know each other a little bit, and and you know maybe have some wisdom passed around between each other, uh, particularly when you're you know you're trying to get ready for your talk and. It's nice to be able to speak with other people who've uh, spoken before and and get a sense of what's involved. Um, and we usually spend four days in uh, another city in the U.S. So the first year I was there, we were in St. Louis for a couple of days. Uh, last year, we were in Albuquerque for a few days. We decided to stick close to home. And then this year, we decided to go to Memphis. And then if you're a speaker, then the next year you get invited on the speaker's trip as well. So... Uh, it, it turns into a, a good little group of people that are sort of traveling around. And unfortunately, uh, you're, you know, all sort of like-minded people. And in most cases, you you know a lot of the people there. And, and uh, so a lot of them are friends. So it's it's nice to have that, uh, that sort of four-day trip to um, get together. And uh, as I said, this year we were in Memphis, which was entertaining. Uh, we, had a, we had a good time. We got to see some true Americana. We wandered around Graceland and went down Beale Street and and had some uh, had some interesting encounters while we were there. Um, but unfortunately, the trip back from Memphis to Albuquerque was a bit uh, a bit fraught with uh, problems. 
we had a bit of a challenge getting from from Memphis. We were flying through Dallas, and uh, there was a significant thunderstorm going through Dallas, which meant that we couldn't land, and so therefore we couldn't take off. And uh, I think in, in the end, we spent I think seven and a half hours on a plane between actually flying and then being stuck on runways. So that was uh, that was interesting. And then by the time we got to Dallas at around midnight, uh, we found out that all of the flights the next day were canceled. Because we had 80% of the speakers for this year's Santa Fe Symposium, we did need to get to Albuquerque. Uh, so we ended up hiring a bus and drove 10 hours through northwest Texas and got ourselves to Albuquerque. So that was uh, an interesting interesting road trip. And uh, unfortunately, all of us who were on that bus, we ended up missing the first day of the symposium. Uh, the talks from the from that day, there were a few people who were sent ahead. We managed to reroute a few people, and uh, there were a few people who didn't make the speaker's trip, so they were put into service on the first day, and they ended up uh, speaking instead of uh, those who were originally scheduled to be that day. Uh, but we were able to finally get there, and um, we made it in time for the Saul Bell dinner uh, for the uh, the Saul Bell Award. But uh, yeah, it was in, it was a very long trip between Memphis and, and Albuquerque, which should have taken us a couple of hours, ended up taking us uh, about 36 hours to get home or to get back to uh, Albuquerque. So it was a, a trip to be remembered and hopefully not repeated. Yeah, hopefully not. Almost sounds like you would have been better off heading to the very last make, maker fair there in the, <laughs> the Bay Area and uh, taking a different flight in. Yeah, we were in Memphis that weekend that uh, Maker Fair in San Francisco was going on. And uh, you're right, it would have been much easier for me to get from San Francisco to Albuquerque than it was from Memphis to to Albuquerque. So yeah, it was uh, a bit of a challenge, but uh, fortunately we made it finally. And uh, we have some uh, some interesting stories to tell from the time. There isn't a better group of people to be stuck on a bus with for 10 hours than uh, the speakers from the uh, Santa Fe Symposium. So that was good. I, my uh, my seatmate was uh, Eddie Bell, the uh, the man in charge, and uh, so he and I had uh, good chats about everything from tools and making to classic cars and all sorts of good stuff. So yeah, we had a we had a good time chatting, and it was uh, it was definitely a good trip. We had some entertainment while we were on the trip, and yeah, it was uh, it was a good time. So seeing Elvis's house worth. <laughs> all this hassle no no i can honestly say that i was not an elvis fan before i went and uh i remain not an elvis fan that was um it was a little bit odd he's uh yeah his his life was was definitely weird and uh his def his death is probably more bizarre than his life uh so yeah it wasn't it was an interesting experience i'm glad that i did it but uh I, I can't necessarily recommend it unless you're a huge Elvis fan. I I don't necessarily recommend it. So apart from the awards transferred and bestowed upon you, what was or were some of the highlights of the Santa Fe Symposium for you this year? The first night of the of the symposium itself, so the Sunday, is the Saul Bell Awards dinner. Saul Bell was Eddie Bell's father, and he was a master goldsmith and was the one who ended up founding Rio Grande. And uh, Eddie then sort of took it over. And in fact, uh, a number of the family members are have been at the helm of Rio Grande over the years. I don't remember how long ago. It was sometime in the past decade. 
they founded the Saul Bell Award, and it's a juried award for members of the jewelry community who uh, submit designs uh, to this award. And then the ones who are chosen, the finalists who are chosen, uh, are asked to actually make the pieces that they've submitted. And they're then chosen by uh, a group of judges, and the awards are then given out at the uh, Saul Bell dinner. So we did make it back just in time for that. I, I literally had enough time to run upstairs and iron a shirt and uh, go back down and, and make it for dinner. Uh, so that was nice. It's it's always great seeing the winners from the Saul Bell Awards. Uh, there's a number of different categories, and uh, they they are absolutely remarkable. Some of the some of the designs are are remarkable. Some of the techniques are are quite remarkable. There've been a few techniques that I've seen over the over the years that I'm starting to figure out how to incorporate into some of my own work because they're they are quite uh, quite impressive. So we'll uh, we'll put a link to the uh, Saul Bell Awards page in the uh, show notes. Uh, so if you want to see some of the the current sort of high end art jewelry that's out there, uh, this is um, this is some of it. It's uh, it is quite remarkable. And you mentioned that you and Frank Cooper reconvened there in the Santa Fe, and uh, you had to had to hand over your prized French Elephant Award. Yeah, the French Elephant Award. Unfortunately, I had to give it up. You're you're only a temporary custodian of the French Elephant Award. You are not a uh, not a permanent recipient of it, as it were. So um, I I had to give it up. And and Frank was the uh, the winner this year of the French Elephant Award. So I was I was happy to uh, to pass it on to him. And um, I, I've been told that he will uh, it will maintain a prized uh, location on his desk. And. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was nice seeing his his paper. He was speaking about the process they went through to create the replica of the helm, uh, and so it was uh, it was nice seeing that uh, that presentation and and seeing the paper and uh, seeing some of the artifacts from it as well. I'd seen a few of them when I was over in September, but it was nice uh, sort of seeing a getting a reintroduction to them and seeing some new pieces and getting a little bit more insight into. Uh, how they actually made that work. And then on top of that, there were a few other uh, notable papers that I, that I did enjoy. Um, a few that I've, I haven't had a chance to, uh, to completely read through yet that I did miss. Unfortunately, we did miss those uh, papers on the first day, but uh, there were a few interesting ones, one on uh, soldering and brazing techniques that was, uh, that was quite good from a technical point of view. Uh, Chris Plouffe's paper this year, which included a little bit of work about uh, using rose engines in jewelry work, as well as how to fuse uh, 24 karat gold into palladium, that was quite interesting to see. Uh, so yeah, there was there, as always. There's um, there's some great great papers and great presentations there. Yeah, it was uh, it was certainly worthwhile to be there. Get some new techniques. Get some new ideas for uh, for what I plan on doing. Nice. Yeah, it's impressive the papers that come out of this event, and admirable that. Rio Grande publishes them all online and that they're there in a publicly accessible archive for anyone to access. It's a, an impressive repository of wisdom and experience and just technical explanations that have been distilled down. Yeah. Yeah, it is, uh, it is remarkable. And I guess we should, we should mention that, um, 
the Santa Fe Symposium has been a past sponsor of the show. So, um, you know, they're, they have, uh, they have advertised with us before. Um, but having said that they are really the premier jewelers conference in the world. And, uh, the knowledge that's been gathered there over the last 33 years is truly impressive. Unfortunately, not all of the papers from uh, the entire 33 years are available. I think right now they have them back to 2000. And I think pre-2000, they only have them in paper. And even then, I don't think they published the papers for the first couple of years. I think the first two or three years, there was no book uh, or no published um, record of the presentations. Um, so I know that there, there are some thoughts on how they can digitize, uh, some of the others that they don't have yet up on the, uh, the website. Uh, but of course, trying to turn dead trees into digital, um, records is, it can be a bit challenging if you want to try and do it well. So, uh, we'll see, hopefully those other papers do get up there, but if you're into making and particularly into any kind of metal work, it's worthwhile digging through the archives of the Santa Fe Symposium site. Uh, the papers that are in there cover a huge range of topics. They're obviously, you know, directed originally towards the jewelry industry, but so many things in there can be used by people who are not uh, in the jewelry industry. For instance, the paper this year on uh, brazing and soldering techniques, that's that's certainly usable by anybody who's uh, fabricating things, Any anybody who might be brazing or soldering it's certainly worthwhile reading through that paper. Uh, it really demystifies some of the techniques, some of what's going on and, uh, and is worthwhile, worthwhile reading for anybody who's making things. And that's sort of representative of the papers over the years. There's always something of interest in there. And there's, uh, there's nearly always something useful, no matter what it is that you're, what you're doing, whatever your medium happens to be. And your own papers in their own Nielo are impressive works unto themselves. And, you're going to be presenting yet another iteration or remix on that in just a few more weeks' time. Yeah, the uh, the Goldsmiths Hall in London has taken a page out of Eddie's book and has uh, formed their own conference, uh, the Goldsmiths Congress on Materials and Science, I believe it is. And uh, that's going to be taking place in London the second week of July. And in this year, I am going to be presenting a paper on Niello, and it's a bit of a mashup of my previous two papers with um, one or two maybe new details in there. But for the most part, it's a, a distillation of my previous two papers for the Santa Fe Symposium. And probably, uh, based, on the, based on the paper that I've already submitted, probably the more coherent of the three papers in terms of, you know, a, a useful device for people to actually sit down and, and make Nielo and use it. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. It should be a good symposium this year. And uh, they have a number of people from all over the world. Um, fortunately, a number of people that I know who are friends from uh, past their past speakers at the Santa Fe Symposium, a few people that I've never met before. Uh, so if you're in Europe and you look at the cost of the Santa Fe Symposium and you think it's, uh, it's a little bit daunting to head over to the U.S. for a week for the symposium, this might be a good alternative for you. It's uh, it's closer to home for for many people, and uh, it it should be a, a really good uh, really good symposium. And the location is spectacular. the uh, The actual symposium itself is going to be at Goldsmiths Hall, and Goldsmiths Hall 
is a spectacular venue for um, for spending time at. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous building. And uh, I know dinner on Monday night is going to be there. Uh, it's uh, And from speaking to people who've been there for dinner, it is uh, a remarkable place. It's uh, it's pretty magical. So it's certainly worthwhile uh, going to the Goldsmiths Congress if you happen to be in Europe and you're interested in jewelry making, you're interested in metals. Uh, it's it's going to be an, an outstanding symposium just based on the papers that I've seen that are going to be presented there. Any in particular you're looking forward to? There's a couple of interesting presentations that are going to be happening. Uh, one of them is uh, one of the keynote speakers, uh, Grant McDonald. He founded Grant McDonald Silversmiths, and he's been a, a professional silversmith for 50 years. Uh, he has some interesting stories about uh, the industry, and he's gone on to create a firm that is probably one of the leading jewelers in the world. Uh, certainly, when it comes to custom jewelry, there are very, very few places that can boast the clientele and the work that uh, the Grant McDonald's firm has done. So I'm, I'm curious to see what he has to say about um, about his time in the industry and what he's done. Uh, that's, that's certainly one that I'm looking forward to. Uh, there's also a few papers on uh, platinum and using platinum as a as an alloy for manufacturing, uh, particularly when it comes to casting. Uh, Teresa Frey and uh, Ulrich Klotz, uh, both of them are giving talks on um, on platinum casting and different alloys for platinum casting. Uh, platinum is one of those precious metals that I've never worked in myself, and I really don't know very much about it. So it's uh, it and it can be quite tricky to to use. So I'm I'm interested in learning more about it. So that's something that uh, that will help sort of inform my manufacturing going forward over the next couple of years. And then on top of that, uh, Damiano Zito uh, from ProGold, he's also doing a talk on platinum manufacturing, but he's talking about it from the point of view of printing using uh, selective laser melting. And so he can print parts, print um, uh, jewelry straight into the platinum um, itself. So now there's some interesting options there for uh, that, that Damiano likes to talk about. He's, he's given a few talks that I've seen on uh, selective laser melting. And uh, that's always fascinating to see and, and hear about. Yeah, a lot of people often think of platinum as being more expensive than gold. And that varies depending on the time of year and year and where the prices happen to sit. Because the, the two sort of duke it out in terms of which is more valuable by troy ounce than the other. And uh, that, that fluctuates. That's just what any market does. But what doesn't fluctuate is the difficulty in working on it. So when you're buying something made of platinum, you're paying for labor, mm. by and large. Not not so much the material. I mean, the same thing, in a sense, is true of gold as well. Uh, you tend to be paying more for labor than the material itself at the end of the day. Uh, but the value of the, the material certainly plays into the final cost of things. Uh, but platinum is absolutely uh, a tricky material to work with. Uh, so I hope you're able to derive some useful tips and pointers from Teresa and Ulrich and others yeah. while you're there. 
that's uh, you'll be able to put to work. Yeah, it's it's an interesting metal, and uh, one of the one of the interesting challenges from a price point of view is that uh, platinum tends to be used at ninety five percent purity, whereas gold tends to be used at significantly lower purity than than platinum. So hmm. oftentimes, gold is a little bit less expensive, just from a pure metals point of view uh, or a materials cost point of view than than platinum. But you're right. The the biggest challenge with it from a pricing point of view is the cost of the actual labor in doing it. It certainly is more expensive to do. It's more challenging to cast, uh, much higher temperatures. The metal absorbs gases much easier. Uh, so platinums need to be cast at a high temperature, you know, usually, you know, usually sort of 18, 1900 degrees Celsius so that they're much, much hotter than, than silvers and golds. And then on top of that, they have to be cast in an inert a uh, completely inert environment. Uh, so usually that involves uh, vacuuming the chamber and then backfilling it with argon uh, because you don't want any oxygen in there at all. Otherwise, you end up with significant porosity in the part. So um, it is uh, it is challenging, and I've I've already learned a few interesting techniques for how to deal with it, and uh, I'm certainly looking forward to it. Uh, so a lot of the platinum metals, whether it's platinum or palladium, uh, they're all particularly interesting to me, so we'll see what uh, see what comes out of this, and and uh, hopefully it turns into something useful for me. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at offhours. John can be found on Twitter at under the loop. And Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at silver underscore hand. After seeing the new voice control on the Mac, I realized I've yet to see the new Blade Runner. I'll get to it. Oh, you still haven't seen the new Blade Runner yet? I have not seen the new Blade Runner. Oh, wow, John. I'm disappointed. It's a really good movie. Are you a fan of the original? Not so much because I didn't really. It's it's not of my era, so like that genre of yeah cyberpunk it doesn't really resonate with me. But it was all right. It's a good film. Yeah, yeah. You're probably. Yeah, I was gonna say it's. It was by the time you would have been watching that film, it had, it would have been out for quite a while, and there would have been so many other films that had sort of diluted the genre by the time you saw it. Mm-hmm. Not diluted. It's mm. an interesting way to phrase it. <laughs> well, the problem is that there's so many... It's sort of like Alien, right? There's so many movies. If you didn't see Alien early on, you know, and I mean by like... If you hadn't seen it by like 1985... Uh, by then, so many other movies had tried to copy it and tried to sort of do what it did. It's it's really difficult to, um, you know, to sort of appreciate it for what it was at the time, which was, uh, you know, incredibly groundbreaking in terms of um, how it represented the genre. Because up until, you know, up until Alien and Blade Runner, most science fiction was pretty campy. And uh, they took it seriously in a way that, that you know, eventually became sort of the genre of science fiction movies. But up until then, where you know, just people people weren't uh, weren't treating science fiction seriously.
in a contrasting vein, I find Jurassic Park still holds its own and actually trumps just about any dinosaur movie that has come since. Yeah, but that's not really a high bar to reach, though. There haven't been any all that many good dinosaur movies. And actually, I never, I was never really a big fan of Jurassic Park when it came out. All right, fair enough. Yeah. I appreciate it for the groundbreaking technology they did, that they used for it and stuff like that and some some of the cinematography, but yeah, it wasn't really uh wasn't didn't really do a lot for me. So reflecting back on your life, what was the the first big blockbuster movie that stuck with you? Oh, it your was Star Wars. Memory? Star Wars. It was Easily. Star Wars. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. I uh I remember hmm. So I had seen Empire and New Hope, uh, not in theaters, but I had seen them. And I saw Return of the Jedi at a drive-in. And I remember it was a double bill. It was 16 Candles and Return of the Jedi. So I slept through most of 16 Candles and then... uh, so that was that was certainly the earliest movie that had a big impact on me in terms of what I'd seen and remembering it. I mean, I know I'd seen Disney films and stuff like that, but none of them had sort of had any real impact on me. Now, did you or have you aspired to own any props from the film? From Star Wars? Yeah. No, I've never been much of a prop collector, to be honest. It's never really appealed to me. I tend to collect books and I tend to collect collect things to make things i don't tend to collect uh and artwork um but i don't tend to collect um you know sort of props and stuff like that it's never really been my thing uh, so no no intent to make a lightsaber I, you know the funny thing is i've had i've had the the idea a couple of times to make it but if i were to make a lightsaber it would probably be to make it document it you know like put it on a youtube channel or something like that and then give it to somebody like i wouldn't I wouldn't bother keeping it. It's not the sort of thing that would appeal to me to keep. And even something like uh, something more complicated, like building an R2-D2 or something like that, I would find it interesting, but I, I have no need for one and I wouldn't keep it around. So it's uh, it's one of the reasons why I've never bothered doing it. A Gyoshe lightsaber? <laughs> yeah, or do an Art Deco lightsaber. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, let me just think. Yeah, so that that never really appealed to me. The um, The one that... Sh- Probably the next movie that really sticks in my mind from that early on was uh, Octopussy, the Bond film. Uh, because Bond. How can you go wrong with Bond? Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and in that case, so that goes back to my origin stories as a jeweler because that is the one with the faux Fabergé eggs in it. Mm-hmm. And I've wanted to make a, a um, uh, you know, an egg sort of inspired by that. That's one of the things that's sort of on my list to do. So that was your prop film. Yeah, that's that's my prop. Exactly, that's my prop film. 